0: Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast. Chapter 23, The Pessimists. The debate over flight began to heat up in the 17th century. In part because of Marine Mersenne, in part because of rumors of flying machines, of Tito Livio Baratini's cat-carrying dragon, of the locksmith Besnier's weird windwalker and in part because of a general sense that the laws of nature, God's laws, were more ascertainable and more exploitable than previously assumed. Europe was filling with natural philosophers who were empirically discovering that a lot of stuff people thought they knew through Scripture and Pliny and Aquinas and fucking Aristotle were wrong, and that other things which had been deemed unknowable were not the movements of the planets, the laws of falling bodies, the workings of blood and cells, the speed of light, even the nature of air itself. And each discovery was accompanied by invention. Telescopes, microscopes, calculators and barometers, somewhat accurate clocks, electrostatic generators, and the air pump. How it was that birds flew, and whether that action was replicable on a human scale, Still an open question, but when Francesco Lana de Terzi described an airship made lighter than air by vacuum-emptied copper spheres, he made flying essentially inevitable. Terzi himself recognized that if the practical concerns of flight were surmounted, the ethical, moral, and philosophical problems remained. He concluded that since his airship would empower anyone to fly over any city and bomb innocent people with impunity, God would not allow it to be built. Tertzi was neither the first nor the last to formulate such an argument. The writings of philosophers, theologians, scientists, engineers, and all sorts of others through history are replete with proofs against flying. And I, personally, find these arguments particularly delicious. Not just because of the particulars of the specific arguments, but because of the paradoxical macroscape of the larger debate. We can go back to Mersenne and Descartes. They argued for years over whether flight was possible, with Mersenne saying yes and Descartes disagreeing. Viewed from today, what's yummy is that both of them were right and both of them were wrong simultaneously. Descartes was correct in the moment. No one in the 1600s could fly and no one would succeed in winged flight for centuries to come. So, from an immediately practical perspective, he was absolutely right. Flight, as Mersenne imagined it, couldn't be accomplished. And yet, ultimately, Descartes was quite wrong, as you can prove by walking outside right now and looking up for a few minutes. Or seconds, if you happen to live in the flight path of one of the busiest airports in the world. Not saying who, just saying. Mersenne, alternatively, might have eventually been right many lifetimes after his death, but it was for reasons he couldn't have anticipated. He didn't imagine the prop engine, let alone the jet. And in the near term, he was all the way wrong, even if he died thinking that Bertini's dragon had vindicated him. It's a Pascal's wager, which is ironic, considering that Blaise Pascal was sending letters both to Mersenne and to Carte, but never broached the issue of flight with either of them. Looked at another way, the flight question is that sort of would-you-rather that looms over all scientific discovery. Do you want to be right, or do you want people to think you're right? The Wright brothers didn't walk away from Kitty Hawk screaming, We have flown! Marine Mersenne is avenged! All hail Mersenne! Mersenne doesn't get any credit for prematurely taking their side, and even if he did, what use would it have been to his long-dead and decayed corpse? Nicholas Copernicus knew the earth went around the sun decades before he published that fact. Sure, he was afraid of the possible religious and political ramifications he'd expose himself to, but he told his friends his main concern was that he wouldn't be believed and that instead he'd be ridiculed. Ultimately... It was of immense value to society to learn what Copernicus knew, yet society itself provided the best disincentive to Copernicus to teach it. I think if we lived longer, much longer, like 200 years or three or a thousand, we'd all be more concerned about our beliefs being overturned and less certain in our pronunciations. There'd be a lot more caveating and hedging. It seems to me, sentences would start, or I'm not sure, but, and they'd end with a hand wave, and a, but who's to say, really? Or maybe not. <laughs> maybe there's a person, 250 years old, listening to this in the future, gently laughing and shaking their head at my naive optimism. Over the course of a 250-year lifetime, the chance of being party to a terrible slip and fall, or a horrendous car accident, or a mugging, or a mass shooting, or a freak disaster, climbed to unacceptable levels of risk. Maybe that 250-year-old has bigger things to worry about than embarrassing themselves with an overconfident hypothesis. Maybe the price of longevity isn't circumspection, but cowardice. Maybe they haven't left their house in weeks. Then again, have I? But I digress. This is the constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler, and this is the fourth part of a series investigating the history of flying, or, more to it, the history of not flying. Before we get on with it, I have to apologize. I said this would be a four-part series, but it has once again grown beyond its initial bounds. I'm of two minds about this, there's more than enough material to cover that time, but I'm also aware that I'm now in a position to have spent two and a half months on this subject, as long as I took to figure out who built that damn fool killer submarine. For anyone who isn't interested in these flight stories, or whose interest has been tested over the course of the three and a half hours of audio yet produced, this might not be welcome news. Not to mention that with the move to Airwave, I've gotten a bunch of new listeners, and those of you who are fresh to the show might, at this point, be thinking that this is what it is always about. It's not. Here's the deal, though. Over the last few weeks, I've been having a lot of trouble with my right hand. It's in a lot of pain, and at its worst, it becomes basically unusable. I'm not sure what's wrong. I'm going to leave that up to the doctors. I'm confident everything will be okay. I just don't know when... And in the meantime, typing and editing this show is really, really hard. I'd planned on stuffing a whole lot of story into this episode, making it two hours or two and a half hours if I had to, and getting it over with. But that's just not feasible now. The good news, however, is that I am wading through an embarrassment of great stories on this subject. And being forced to slow down means taking more time to tell more of them better. I think that'll be a worthwhile silver lining. Over the course of this series, we've focused, quite naturally, I think, on those who were wrong in the one way. Those who believed they could fly, but could not. But there is the other group. The snide disbelievers. Betting the overcard. Safely right in the moment, but wrong for all time. People who never left their houses. Those who said flight was impossible. Since we're taking our time here, Let's talk about some of them. This week's episode, What Goes Up, Part 4. Historically, denying the potential of flight wasn't strictly or even mainly a mechanical enterprise, and I think this shows just how profound the thinking of humanity has changed over time. When we ask, is such and such possible, most of us today envision the question logistically or logically. If we look at an illustration of Besnier the locksmith with his big kayak oars slung over his shoulders, we conclude he couldn't fly because his apparatus wasn't suited for it. But that sort of materialistic attitude is actually quite young, or at least its dominance is. For the people of the past, the question of whether Besnier could fly had other elements. Throughout Western history, the question was mainly theological and teleological, If we aim our sights at the Renaissance, we can look at Leonardo da Vinci, who studied the flights of birds, to ask whether he could mechanically emulate them. But for many European thinkers, such a line of inquiry might have seemed ludicrous. Birds were flying things, and humans were not. Whether a person could fly wasn't about whether they could copy the bird's nature. It was about whether they could defy their own. A person, the thinking went, could not fly on their own because it was not in a person's purpose as laid out by God. They would have to appeal to a higher power. The first choice would be God, naturally, but since it was God's design that made people flightless, he could not be entreated against his will to pervert his creation. That left the darker forces. Could the devil or his demons lift a person off the ground? This sticky theological wicket, akin to the classic could God make a stone so large not even he could lift it, was tackled in The Powerlessness of the Devil by Clemente Baroni Cavalcabo. Demons could fly, and they were very strong, so the obvious answer was that they could pick a person up and cause them to fly. But no, said Clemente. Even with all their strength and cunning and wings, no demon, not even the devil himself, could breach the will of god flight by this argument was impossible no matter what and that impossibility illustrated the full omnipotence of god his law could not be subverted even when it might seem overwhelmed by power or common sense there was also the ethical objection to flight which dissuaded francesco lana de terzi from building his vacuum airship In the fifth chapter of the Book of Zechariah, the minor prophet describes being shown a flying sickle that God promises to bring down on thieves and liars. In the 4th century AD, the Archbishop of Constantinople, St. John Chrysostom, considered Zechariah's flying sickle and concluded, much like Francesco did, that no one could be safe from a weapon which flew above them. It was one thing for God to wield such a power, but mankind could and should never possess such an awful ability. By the 17th century, practicality had entered into the flight debate, with discussions like those between Mersenne and Descartes mostly dominating the debate. The question of whether flying was physically possible began to supersede whether it was morally or theologically permissible. But those matters still weren't settled. Johann Daniel Major was a towering German intellect in the mid-17th century, He's the first person to have publicly dissected a corpse, the first person to have successfully injected medicine into a patient's vein, and one of the first people to consider the building and systematizing of a collection as a discipline, what we would now call museology or museum studies, but which Major called tactica conclavium. When Major considered the practicalities of flight, he had to admit that flying seemed to be a real and even looming possibility. But Major shuddered to consider the ramifications of such an invention, writing, What a completely new and dangerous appearance the world would have. How much more hazardous, indeed how much more abominable, the world would seem to have become for all posterity. What treachery, robbery, and assassination, what other sins and shamefulness would be heaped upon one another? Towns and castles, whole provinces and kingdoms would presumably soon be obliged to fill the air either by means of the frequent firing of cannons or by stirring up rising smoke, or else to protect themselves thoroughly with large iron gratings used as nets, and to arm themselves, if not against total invasion, at least against the frequent throwing of fire and stones by the flying army, which, like Lucianic birds of prey, darting down from the world of the moon, would otherwise raise everything to the ground. Another member of Mersenne's pan-European chatroom, Juan Caramel Lopkowitz, used the same hypothetical to argue that God wouldn't allow such a thing. Imagining a world of flying people, he writes, Whose life would be free from danger? What house would be safe from robbers? What city would be safe against the enemy? In truth, no care, no foresight would be sufficient to protect men, especially at night, from the flying foe. And so mankind was treated mercifully when he was denied the wings, which he would have misused. Even if you could get around the terrible threat of enemy flyers, there were other ethical reasons to balk at the idea. Nehemiah Grew, the English father of plant anatomy, and his sponsor, Bishop John Wilkins, agreed that flight couldn't be achieved because of its intra community effects. If people could fly, Grew said, there would be no countries, no cities, no towns, because anytime there was disagreement, discontentment, antipathy, or fear within a community, its members would simply soar away and make their homes on cliffsides all alone. In 1707, the French novelist and playwright Alain René Lesage published The Devil Upon Two Sticks. In it, Don Cleophas manages to free the demon Osmodius from a bottle, and as reward, Osmodius flies Don Cleophas high above the city of Madrid. The conceit of The Devil Upon Two Sticks is that Osmodius is able to peel open the roofs of unsuspecting Spaniards, revealing to Don Cleophas the secrets and sins people keep in private. It was an immense success, translated, adapted, and riffed upon for centuries to come, but some didn't think the scenario was so fun. Some saw it as a fearsome warning. The English scientist and rector, William Durham, who was the first person to measure the speed of sound, must have gotten goosebumps over the devil upon two sticks. In 1713, he wrote Physico-Theology, in which he considered the art of flying, which he thought, quote, in some cases might be of good use but in other respects might prove of dangerous and fatal consequence, as, for instance, by putting it in man's power to discover the secrets of nations and families, more than is consistent with the peace of the world for man to know. Then, there is Johann Ludwig Hahnemann, who was a professor at the University of Kiel at the same time as Johann Daniel Major. Hahnemann is one of those guys who's famous for being wrong. (laughs) Although William Harvey had basically proven that blood circulates throughout the body via veins and arteries back in 1628, 12 years before Hahnemann was born, Hahnemann argued well into the next century that it did not. As evidence and argument accumulated against alchemy, Hahnemann continued to say that both metals and flesh could be transmuted. More... Sinisterly, Hanneman was a firm believer that black skin was a sign of the curse of ham, an idea he helped to spread and which was taken up as a moral justification for the African slave trade. And then there was flight. When Bessnier the locksmith was drawn in the journal de Scabins, he was shown with his weird oars over his shoulders, naked. And this seems to have stuck in Hanneman's prudish craw. If a man had to be naked... In order to fly, then God most certainly could not allow it. A fleet of flyers firebombing Dresden by night was terrible to consider, but imagine that same squadron hovering about the city, dinguses and tatas flapping free for every gawking woman and child to leer at. That was the true danger. Hanneman tried to find a workaround for what we might as well call the nudity problem of flight, but nothing would do. He imagined a variety of outfits that might be tight enough to protect the aerodynamic advantages of nudity, but that wouldn't expose all the naughty bits. Maybe a thin lambskin stretched over the body, or parchment fitted tightly around the buttocks and loins? But then there was the risk of tearing. Workable wings were one thing. Tailoring modest yet effectively tight pants, was the real impossible problem of flying. But not every objection was so flamboyant or misguided. The Neapolitan physiologist Giovanni Alfonso Borelli, who we talked about in the episode Shocking, provided one of the biggest blows against the prospect of aviation. In his book De Motu Animalium, published posthumously by the exiled Catholic Queen Christina of Sweden, he took the wind out of a lot of sails. At the time, it was believed that muscles must work either via a vital force, such as the vibrational tonic motion Galen posited to explain bird flight, or else through what was called balloonism, which held that muscles expand and contract via air or fluid filling and emptying from them, which, weirdly, was also first posited by Galen. In DeMoto, Borelli proved both theories wrong and demonstrated that muscles contract physically. He also took a hard look at flight. He managed to cut down tonic motion another time and offered a largely incorrect, but less incorrect than the competition, explanation of lift and thrust as physical phenomena. However, Borelli concluded, while birds flew by the mechanical action of their muscles flapping their wings, his math showed, seemingly conclusively, that the muscles of a human would never be strong enough to power wings large enough to lift one. I could go on and on and on, but we've got a lot of failed flyers left to talk about, and with what we've already covered, we've got a pretty good sense of the landscape going into the 1700s. Flight was impossible, first off because the forces necessary to lift a bird didn't scale plausibly for a person, as Borelli showed, and second off because of the many moral, ethical, and theological concerns that would encourage God to keep us on the ground. Which brings us to... Chapter 24, The Optimist. Jean-Jacques Rousseau. Everybody's favorite, second favorite, or at worst, third favorite, proto-democratic, enlightenment political philosopher. Rousseau was a bit of an idealist. The quintessential pre-romantic. And you can see his rose-hued, golly shucks, yes-we-can attitude in nearly everything he ever wrote. He viewed humans as essentially moral, cooperative, and altruistic, and believed that a government formed through the consent of the governed could benefit all. He took a very liberal view of child-centered education, for boys at least. The less said of his views on young women, the better. His epistolary novel, Julie, or the new Heloise, is the model for the romantic fiction tradition that blossomed in the 19th century, full of introspection, interest in the subjective, personal, emotional experience of its characters. This deeply psychological portrayal, along with the book's focus on the opposing poles of passion and virtue, struck a chord with readers the world over, transforming Rousseau into the world's first rock star author, and opening doors for everyone from Charles Dickens to the Brontes to Tolstoy. But... If you wanted to capture as much of Rousseau's romantic spirit in as little time as possible, if you were searching out the densest ratio of hopeful passion per word, you could do worse than to turn to his 1742 article about the possibility of flight, entitled The New Daedalus. Rousseau had been thinking about flight long before publishing. Friedrich Melchior, Baron von Grimm, had even made fun of him for it, writing, He was occupied with a machine with which he counted on learning to fly. He persisted in attempts that did not succeed at all, but he was never sufficiently disillusioned with his project to put up coolly with anyone treating it as chimerical. Thus, his friends, if they are faithful, can expect to see him floating in the air someday. In the new Daedalus, Rousseau showed that he would not be shamed out of his belief. If "...in order to destroy a proposition, it was only a question of holding it up to ridicule, I admit that aerial navigation would not have a good chance," he wrote. "...its idea carries with it a certain air of paradox and chimera, entirely suited to putting the scoffers in a good humor." Then Rousseau got to work, passionately shooting down the critics of flight, starting with an oblique swipe at the racist bungler, Johann Ludwig Hahnemann. Nevertheless, the most respectable evidence would not be sheltered from such attacks. The circulation of the blood had already been perfectly demonstrated when the old doctors and stubborn scholastics made extremely pretty jests about it that did not fail to attract the laughers onto their side. To believe that blood circulates would have been so many amusements lost. To be made fun of is almost always the fate of the truth. Irony and raillery are the genuine weapons of error they are very much easier for it to find than reasons are. Next up, Rousseau took apart the moral and ethical objections to flight. Is it necessary to prohibit it to us because a wretched bandit will perhaps be able to avail himself of it? From similar arguments, we would be brought to take away what is most excellent on the earth for what is not misused. No more horses, they favor the bad strokes and the flights of criminals. No more navigation, it supports pirates. No more clothing, it engenders luxury. What am I saying? Even no more laws. No religion. They are the sources of chicanery and fanaticism. This response is trivial, because the blame of the best things by means of the consideration of their misuses is a sophism often combated and often renewed. Here's a big dose of that patented Rousseau optimism for you. Every invention used in the human race, although common to all men, nevertheless very truly provides advantages to the good against the wicked by giving new weapons to the body of society to attack them or to defend oneself against them. Rousseau managed, in his beautiful and annoying way, to strike down all the arguments of the pessimists and stirred the same kind of marching hopefulness about the prospect of flying that drove the American colonists and French Jacobins to fight for democracy. And then he hit Borelli. Against Borelli's arithmetic, which showed that human muscles didn't have the strength to carry them through the air, Rousseau's soaring optimism flagged. The final pages of the new Daedalus show him reckoning with the possibility of using compressed air in rockets or building some sort of lighter-than-air ship like Francesco Lana de Terzi's. But although he continues, to the end, to believe that flight must be possible, that just as we swim in the water, we will one day swim through the sky, Rousseau is unable to shake Borelli's realism. Much as he'd have liked it to be otherwise, when Rousseau published the new Daedalus in 1742... He could no longer believe a man could fly by wings alone. because, when he wrote the New Daedalus, he had just watched one man try. Chapter 25: The Marquis? Question mark. There was another Frenchman hanging around Paris in 1742 who also harbored a secret dream of flight within his breast. His name was Jean-Francois Boivin de Bonneton, but he is better known as the Marquis de Backville. Giving a biography of the Marquis de Backville is tough, in part because everything he might have written himself was destroyed in a fire. More of that in a minute. And in part because almost everything written about him that wasn't destroyed in fire was written to ridicule him. More on that even sooner. He was, I'm fairly confident, not a Marquis, or at least not the Marquis of Backville since that title doesn't seem to exist. At best, we can safely say he made the position up, whether it was recognized by others or not. But that's in line with what we know about the self-styled Marquis de Backville, because beyond a birth year and a date of death, the one sure fact about Jean-Francois is that he was a fucking weirdo. For instance, he is mentioned in the personal diary of economist and philosopher Henri de Saint-Simon in 1720, because in that year, jean Francois's wife left him, citing his eccentric and embarrassing expenditures. Luckily for us, Saint-Simon wrote about this separation before Bacville became a total laughingstock, so we can probably trust it. The hard cutoff for people taking Jean-Francois seriously is March 19, 1742, when the ever-evervescent Jean-Jacques Rousseau positioned himself on the banks of the Seine in order to watch the Marquis de Bacville fly. Having heard Bacville's announcement that he had invented a means of flight and would personally demonstrate it, a large crowd gathered below his hotel on the Rue de Saint-Père, from which Bacville was meant to launch himself, filling the streets and bridges clear through to the other side of the river in the Tuileries Gardens where he was meant to land. Because of the many French painters who practiced along the Seine, the Marquis de Baqueville's wingsuit became the third most popular and reproduced image of aviation in the pre-flight world, after Leonardo da Vinci's flying screw and Besnier the locksmith's shoulder oars. When Backville showed himself on the top of the hotel, he was wearing four large comma-shaped paddles, one strapped to each hand and foot. How Jean-Francois expected this arrangement to work is hard to say, given that it didn't, and since all of his personal documents were burnt in a fire, foreshadowing again. Maybe the setup was meant to emulate the wings of an insect like a dragonfly, and he expected to flap both his arms and legs rapidly in tandem? Or maybe he thought he would aerially crawl through the firmament, stomping his feet and hands down on the sky, only to have the sky push back against them? Or maybe he thought he'd glide on the air like a pond skater, delicately balanced upon the thin tension of the wind. Whatever he thought, he was wrong. But for a brief instant, after he stepped off the edge of the hotel roof, it didn't seem like it. For just a second or two, the Marquis de Baqueville appeared to be wobbly floating in midair. And for just that second or two, Jean-Jacques Rousseau's heart must have flown too, straight into his mouth. The moment soon passed, and in front of the collected mass of Paris, the Marquis de Bocqueville tumbled and spun, his body falling safely into the clear waters of the Seine. His body, but not his legs. They cracked hard into a washerwoman's barge and shattered, along with whatever reputation the false Marquis had. From the moment he was pulled out of the river, Jean-Francois Boivin de Bonneton, Marquis de Bocqueville, was, as I have said, a stock, And rightly so, you might think. He was, after all, a 32-year-old divorcee who had gathered the people of Paris to watch him flop against a barge with paddles tied to his limbs. But whether he deserved all the ridicule or not, it does make it really difficult to tell what about the post-fall backfill was real and what was a joke. He never tried to fly again, that we know for sure. And we know about the fire. Everything else exists within the realm of Poe's law. It's impossible to say whether it's real or satire. But hell, we're already here. So let's take a look at the rest of jean Francois's biography according to Jean-Louis Marie, the actual Marquis du Gas de Beau Saint-Just. According to Saint-Just, no sooner had Bocqueville been disillusioned about flying than a new illusion came to pick up the slack. jean Francois's next idea was that he could learn to live without eating. The key, he figured, was to cut out food gradually, stepping down like a series of shrinking nicotine patches. Unlike his hotel-top demonstration, Bachville had the self-interest not to test his new theory on himself. Instead, he used a few of his horses. Over the course of weeks, he reduced their rations, cutting out hay, then straw, then oats, until the animals were left with nothing at all. Two days later, his stable boys came to tell him that the animals had died in the night. Bockville was frustrated. That's a shame, he grumbled. They were almost accustomed to it. When one of his unstarved horses kicked a man, he decided to test another new theory that horses could be civilized. He set up a court to try the equine for its crime and delivered a harsh sentence, sorry for all you horse lovers out there, that the animal be hung by the neck outside the stable to serve as an example to the others. After a few days, one of his longtime guests at the hotel complained about the smell of the hanging horse. Saint-Just says that Bachville replied to the complaint, saying to his concierge, Tell her that she has been infecting my hotel for 12 years, and that I will not have my horse taken away until it has been decided by experts that he stinks as much as she does. Eventually, Bachville's mania drove him to paranoia and isolation, He holed himself up in a three-room apartment within the hotel and frittered away his time punching holes in the walls, into which he shoveled his money, his valuables, his gold, his jewels, and whatever writings he might otherwise have left behind. On October 7th, 1760, the 72-year-old flying laughingstock of Paris was at the opera when his hotel caught fire. He stayed put for the rest of the show, then walked calmly back to the burning building and locked himself in his apartment. When his son heard about the fire, he came running and found the door to his father's safe-keep locked. He kicked it down, only to immediately discover his father, Jean-Francois Boivin de Bonneton, Marquis de Bocqueville, sitting at a table with a loaded gun pointed towards the door, ready to kill anyone who saw the fire as an opportunity to loot his walls. Before he could shoot his son, or before his son could talk him out of it, the floor beneath the table gave way under the stress of the fire, and the Marquis de Bocqueville fell one last time, with no river sand below to save him. The hotel burnt to the ground. When the site was cleared, the crew found what Saint-Just called a prodigious quantity of gold and silver amid the wreckage. But any papers that the Marquis de Baqueville might have left to explain himself and his flying machine were raised to ashes. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp Online Therapy. Relationships take work. A lot of us will drop anything to go help someone we care about. We'll go out of our way to treat other people well, but how often do we give ourselves the same treatment? I try to set aside a little time to do something that relaxes me every day, like cooking or music or video games mostly. This month, BetterHelp Online Therapy wants to remind you to take care of your most important relationship, the one you have with yourself. Whether it's hitting the gym, making time for your haircut, or even trying therapy, you are your greatest asset. So invest the time and effort into yourself like you do for other people. Therapy has, at several times in my life, been invaluable, and I wouldn't be the person I am today without it. BetterHelp is online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist, so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy, and you can be mashed with a therapist in under 48 hours. Give it a try and see why over 2 million people have used BetterHelp Online Therapy. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp, and constant listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com theconstant the constant. That's betterhel dot com the constant. You're successful in business because you love doing the research, whether it's the state of the market or the next right hire. But when you're low on hours and you still want to do a great job on hiring, who do you go to for help? It's time for Indeed. If you're hiring, you need Indeed, because Indeed is the hiring partner where you can attract, interview, and hire all in one place. And Indeed is the only job site where you're guaranteed to find quality applications that meet your must-have requirements or else you don't pay. Instead of spending hours on multiple job sites hoping to find candidates with the right skills, you need one powerful hiring partner that can help you do it all. Indeed partners with you on every step of the hiring process. Find great talent through time-saving tools like Indeed Instant Match, assessments, and virtual interviews. With Instant Match, as soon as you sponsor a post, you get a short list of quality candidates with resumes on Indeed that match your job description, and you can invite them to apply right away. Plus, you only pay for quality applications that meet your must-have requirements. Here's a cool thing for you. Indeed has 135 assessment tests to help you see your top talent's abilities faster. Start hiring right now with a $75 sponsored job credit to update your job post at Indeed.com slash the constant. Offer valid through March 31st. Go to Indeed.com slash the constant to claim your $75 credit before March 31st indeed.com/ the constant. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need indeed. The constant is brought to you by the University of California Irvine Division of Continuing Education. Today's economy is highly competitive and UCI DCE can prepare you to stand out. According to data from the US Bureau of Labor Statistics, continuing education correlates to higher income. It opens doors to networking opportunities, better job opportunities, and career progression. Not to mention that learning more stuff makes you more interesting. UCI-DCE has been serving lifelong learning and skills development needs for the local, regional, and global community for over 50 years. They offer 80 career-focused programs in business, leadership, tech, education, engineering, health sciences, law, finance, and more courses are offered on a quarterly basis and non-formal application is required to enroll learn from instructors who are practicing professionals with extensive relevant industry experience and gain practical skills that can be applied immediately on the job at uci dce enrollment is open to everyone go to ce.uci.edu learn now to learn now again that's ce.uci.edu or follow the link in the show notes. Chapter 26. The priest? Another question mark? Many historical stories contain holes, and so in telling them one must carefully consider whether and how to leap over them, peer into them, or go around. The hole at the center of Father Andrea Grimaldi is too wide to jump. It's too big even to go around, and it's so deep that when you stare down into it, it stares back into you. Andrea Grimaldi's story is all whole, so to tell it, we're going to have to grab a rope, some sensible shoes, and climb down. The eye-catching surface of Grimaldi's story comes from a long and detailed letter. Who wrote it, and to whom it was written, are both unknown. But somehow, this letter made it into print in a number of sources, the most prominent of which is an Italian-language almanac printed at Amsterdam by one F. Pateri titled The History of the Year 1751. In the letter, Andrea Grimaldi is described as a 50-year-old Italian monk who had spent the preceding 20 years in the, quote, furthest east, where he learned to build, ah, hell, let's quote again, the most marvelous and wonderful machine which mechanical and mathematical art could produce. You know what? I'm just going to keep reading. The machine is a box of the most curious workmanship and texture which, by means of clockwork, rises into the air and flies with such lightness and speed that it can travel at the rate of seven leagues an hour. It is made in the shape of a bird. The wings measure 22 feet from tip to tip. The body is composed of pieces of cork skillfully put together, firmly joined by wires and covered with vellum and feathers. The wings are made of catgut and whalebone, and are also covered in vellum and feathers, and each wing holds in three joints. In the body of the machine there are contained 30 wheels of singular workmanship, two brass globes, and some small chains which alternately expand and contract, and by the aid of six vessels of brass containing quicksilver, which runs into various channels with internal divisions, the artist is able to keep the machine in equilibrium and properly balanced. Then by means of friction between a properly tempered steel wheel and a large and powerful magnet, the whole machine moves forward with regular motion, for it can either fly in a gale or in a dead calm. I'm going to keep going because this next bit is too wonderfully fantastical to skip. This machine is directed and guided by a tail seven spans long, which is attached to the knees and ankle of the driver by narrow leather straps, and so by stretching his legs to the right or left, he can move the machine to whichever side he likes. The head is the most beautiful shape and represents that of an eagle. The eyes are glass and so natural that they appear to be alive as they move on their axis by means of two wires inside the beak. Eyes and beak are in continuous motion during flight. This lasts only three hours, and then, this is my favorite part, the wings gradually close. When the driver perceives this, he lets himself fall gently to earth upon his own feet in order to rewind the machine. There's plenty more spectacular detail describing the feathers and beak and the prismatic beauty of this incredible steampunk bird ship, but... Even among the magnets and quicksilver and turning eyes and folding wings, one bit really stands out. He has not run the risk more than once of passing over the sea, which he did from Calais to Dover, arriving that same morning in London, whither he said he was drawn partly by curiosity, partly by the fame of our learned men and professors of mechanical science. Andrea Grimaldi, according to this anonymously written and anonymously received letter, flew from Calais to Dover, across the English Channel, some 30 miles, and then on to London, another 80 miles, in the course of a morning. Just who the hell was this Father Andrea Grimaldi? I have no idea. Neither is anyone else. He wasn't a monk or a priest, despite what accounts say, and his name probably wasn't Andrea Grimaldi either. And you might say, of course not, Mark. This is obviously just some nonsense cooked up by F. Pateri to sell the history of the year 1751, to which I would answer, okay, I see where you're coming from. But two things. One... I can't find any other record of F. Pateri either. And two, whoever he was, his is not the only account of Andrea Grimaldi and his mechanical bird. And it's not the only time someone mentioned his cross-channel flight either. So, let's get out some rope and rappel a bit deeper. The earliest existent version of this story dates to the October 5th, 1751 edition of the Whitehall Evening Post, which Clive Hart managed to dredge up for an article on the subject, which he also published in his 1985 book, The Prehistory of Flight. I'm sad to say, let me digress here. The Prehistory of Flight is out of print, and Clive Hart passed away a few years back. He was one of a very few people to ever really dig comprehensively into this subject. And he does so very thoroughly and entertainingly, so I really recommend the book if you can get your hands on it. He was also a top-notch scholar of two of my favorite writers, Samuel Beckett and James Joyce, and basically kicked off serious scholarship of Finnegan's Wake, so I really would have liked to grab a beer with the guy. Anyway, Hart tracked Grimaldi's story back to the Whitehall Evening Post article, which reads almost exactly like the anonymous letter, but perhaps before it was translated into Italian and then back into English again. Galileo Venturini showed that no Italian Jesuit, either monk or priest, was in London at the time, meaning that at the very least, Andrea Grimaldi was not Italian, not Jesuit, or... neither. He also probably wasn't a Grimaldi, since the Grimaldi family was royalty, and at the moment they were dividing their time between the Kingdom of Monaco and the Paris Hotel Montagnon, just down the way from where the Marquis de Bocqueville made his infamous plunge into the Seine. So we descend another layer into the hole. It seems likely that Andrea Grimaldi, or whatever we should call him, was a con artist who chose an identity that conveyed both authority as a nobleman and honesty as a priest. Probably he possessed neither. But his flying machine, as described in both the letter and the article, is a different matter. Don't get me wrong, I don't think it flew, it obviously didn't fly. But the description is so detailed, and those details paint a really interesting picture. The inclusion of magnets and quicksilver and a friction wheel give the game away. They're three of the most popular calling cards of the 18th century charlatan. But the knowledge of engineering and the choice of materials paint a more complicated picture. Whoever Grimaldi was, he apparently knew that a flying machine needed a way to balance and turn. He knew it had to be light yet sturdy. He knew it needed power beyond human muscles and larger wings than most would-be flyers of the time bothered to build. It's almost enough to make you wonder, if there's more to the story. There's one way to satisfy that curiosity. At the end of the Whitehall Post article, the reporter wrote that Grimaldi meant to prove his machine by making a two-hour flight around London in honor of the King's birthday, October 30th, after selling his technique to anyone willing to pay him 50 guineas. He might well have made some sales, but by King George's B-Day, Andrea Grimaldi, whoever he really was, had disappeared. Chapter 27. The Actual Priest. Abbe pierre de Foget was an actual priest who actually built a machine, which he actually attempted to fly. All the worse for him. Outside of that, he was best known for a book he wrote when he was the canon of the Church of Saint-Croix in the Commune of Etampes, which, for simplicity's sake, we can call a southern suburb of Paris. The book, written in 1758 when Desforges was 35, went over very poorly. The title alone gives a good hint of why it roughly translates to advantages of marriage, so far so good, and how necessary and salutary it is for priests and bishops of this time to marry a Christian girl. Catholic authorities seized 2,000 copies burnt them, and sent Deforges to the Bastille. While imprisoned, he studied the mating habits of swallows and wrote a lewd poem thereon which was likewise banned. When he was released from the Bastille in May of 1759, he revealed that he hadn't just learned how the birds got busy, he'd also figured out how they flew. Or so he hinted when he wrote his former warden in August, saying, At the moment, I am engaged in a project to build a machine that will be very useful to the people. I made a small test which was very successful for me. Soon, I will present it to the court to express my gratitude. DeForget's definition of soon must have been pretty elastic. It was a cool decade and change before he unveiled his first flying device, a set of wings connected to a full-body feathered suit. The priest of St. Croix convinced a parishioner to don the getup, maybe as part of his penance, who knows, and brought him up to the church's belfry, where he commanded the peasant to jump. Um, no, said the peasant, and I have to ask, what did you think was going to happen when he covered you in feathers, slapped wings on your back, and took you to the roof? Deforges assured him that it was totally safe, but the faithful congregant did what Jesus would, refusing to throw himself from a great height. Desforget, it seemed, was not as sure of his wings as he'd told the man, because he refused to jump himself. But Abby Desforget wasn't done yet. He had a better idea. A bigger idea. He just needed the money for it. So he did what a budding podcaster would do. He made a Kickstarter. He put ads in papers all around Paris, promising to build a miraculous flying machine if locals contributed 100,000 livres around... 30,000 American dollars in 2022, which I suppose they'd then be able to use, borrow, look at. The details are pretty foggy. Nevertheless, three weeks later, Abbé Pierre de got a bite. An interested party wrote a response letter, explaining that he was all in with the proposed flying machine. For a start, the writer says, it would greatly improve mail delivery, as a postman would only have to fly over the town square and dump letters onto the public. This would speed up the post significantly and spare the kingdom the money and effort of maintaining so many horses for the job. The writer even offers some helpful brainstorming on how the whole system might work. Maybe each town could fly their city flag high above the church towers so that the flying mailman could see where he was going from the air and cut a straight-as-the-crow-flies path from destination to destination. Deforger must have been very excited to read this response. Finally, somebody understood what he was up to. And then he got to the end of the letter. Quote, One other difficulty which I ask you to resolve, and I fear it will not be the last, is whether a hunchback who, because of his shape, is incapable of making certain efforts, could handle the flying chariot with as much assurance as any other man. I confess to you that I am tired of falling, and, having deformed myself by stealing birds' nests, I should not want to risk being crushed by flying through their empire. It was a prank. The 18th century equivalent of a concern troll, a prank call. And it wasn't the last. People saw Desforges' proposal as a joke and piled additional jokes on top of it. A week later, the frustrated father responded. Fine, he said. Since nobody was willing to help him bake the bread, no one would get to eat it either. He was going to make the flying chariot himself. Then he would fly off the top of the Tower Gwinnett, a medieval fortress that loomed over Etampes. From there, he would fly all by himself, thank you very much, to Paris and circle the Tuileries, where the Marquis de Bacqueville had hoped to land five or six times before returning home. When he landed, and everyone was duly impressed and humbled, he would celebrate by burning his flying machine in the street. If any of these doubters and jokesters wanted him to build another after that, they could cough up the cash. It took Deforget another year to make good on his threat. In September of 1772, he revealed his flying machine. It was a gondola, but woven like a basket out of willow branches. Just six feet long, it was covered by a canopy that was meant both to keep out the rain and work as a lifting parachute. That was just a secondary system, though. The main oomph of the gondola were two wings that protruded out of its sides, which the pilot, i.e. desforger, would row like oars from within. The whole vessel was initially covered in slick English silk, but Deforget wrote that he was worried this would make his aerial chariots too fast. So he added a layer of feathers to everything, the canopy, the wings, the body, to create drag and slow it down. With all that, the vehicle was still incredibly light, just 48 pounds. Deforger thought this lightness was a safety feature. He claimed that even if the wings were shot off by cannon fire, he and his machine would still manage to slowly drift towards Earth with the support of the canopy. Place your bets on whether that worked out now. In early September, Abbé de Faugé set out to fly. In an interesting bit of symmetry, we know about his attempt through Friedrich Melchior, Baron von Grimm, the same critic and encyclopedia writer who derided Rousseau's belief in flight as well as Rousseau's novel. Von Grimm was a catty, acid-tongued derider of anything he could get his hands on. The prototypical example of the snooty, superior critic. He even self-published a newsletter to spread his insights. Abbe pierre de was about to make himself an easy target. He enlisted four men to help him carry his gondola to the top of the tower. Then he climbed inside, closed up the canopy above him, and manned the winged oars. He told his assistants to pick up the whole device and hold it over the hundred-foot drop. Then, confidently, he ordered them to let go. The giant feathered basket fell straight down, hit the mound at the tower's base, and then slid the rest of the way to level ground. The one spot of good news for Deforger is that the surface area of his non-flying chariot had apparently been enough to slow and protect him from the full brunt of the dive. He escaped with a bonk on the head, a smack on the elbow, and a mortal wound to his ego. Like the Marquis de Bacqueville before him, Abbe Pierre de Forger was a laughingstock. The story of his fall became a bigger joke than his request for funding had been. All around Europe, he was the subject of mockery. And while I can't say for sure, I'm betting he did burn his flying machine, almost as promised. The most cutting criticism came, predictably, from Baron von Grimm. His newsletter on the subject, which was read by nobles and royalty all around the continent, including Emperor Leopold II, King Gustav of Sweden, and even Catherine the Great, concluded by explaining that while Abbé Pierre de Forges might have been imprisoned in the Bastille for insisting priests should marry, his attempt at flight assured, quote, They will never burn the canon of Etampes as a sorcerer. for today's episode provided by Epidemic Sound and Blue Dot Sessions. Title cards by Heather Chrysler. Hey, I got a new one for you. If you've got a business or service that you think the Constance audience would appreciate, maybe you'd like to sponsor the show. If so, send an email to sales at and let them know you're interested in advertising with us. Or, for the classy individual, why not head over to patreon.com slash theconstant to support the making of this show. Constantpodcast.com is the website where you can find old episodes, our medias, social, and our merch store. Grab yourself a coffee mug. And hey, hey you, tell a friend to listen. Thank you. Until next time, from Chicago, Illinois, where the low-flying jets headed into O'Hare regularly interrupt my recording, this has been the constant.